Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Joe Padulo. We're at uh, Portland Wine Storage Annex in Portland. It's January 25th of 2024. And Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question, big question, is why wine? Well, I, I like wine. I've always liked wine and been attracted to it. Um, and, you know, coming out of college and kind of finding my way that way, you know, looking for kind of a path, you know, I guess, why not wine? And, um, but it wasn't a direct course or anything like that. So I grew up mostly on the East Coast. I'm from the West Coast, from Palo Alto, but spent most of my years on the East Coast. And, um, and I have a lot of family there, mostly concentrated from there. So, um, and growing up, I was exposed to alcohol being part of daily life, um, definitely part of like celebratory stuff. And, you know, I associated with a lot of good things, a lot of good associations. And, um, you know, wine in particular, especially like the old crusty looking bottles and things like that, like had this kind of mystique, this allure that definitely stood out, made it, you know, more attractive to me. And um, I don't think I held on to that and like kept that as like um, a course to pursue in life, but it definitely was something I always was drawn to. And I liked old things like antiques and stuff like that. So, I grew up over there. I went to college there, liberal arts. I studied philosophy and art and music with philosophy being my main focus. Didn't have a plan for what that was going to then take me to. I wasn't interested in school, like going back into school, being a professor or continuing studies. I was pretty eager to get out of that system. and. Um, so following that, I ended up living with my parents in Philadelphia for like a year after college to kind of get my bearings. We're not from Philadelphia, but they moved there while I was away. And so that was kind of like a new home. Mm-hmm. And um, it was fun at the time. This is like the, what? I graduated from college in 93, so, you know, 93, 94. And um, yeah, I think a lot of my friends, everyone was kind of like off in different directions. Like very few people that I knew knew what they were doing. So everybody was trying things out. And um, Philadelphia ended up not really being a good fit for me. You know, I didn't know anybody there. I didn't have um, like a, a good career path or, and like I said, I wasn't interested in going back to school. So I, um, I briefly checked out Los Angeles. I had a friend who was living there and kind of encouraging friends to come 
join him, and that I did not have any. And once I saw it, I ran from that, and that's how came back. And then I had another friend living in in Idaho, in Sun Valley, Idaho, kind of taking the um, the ski bum route. And um, and at that point, I was considering going to work in restaurants. I thought that would be that would be fulfilling for me. That would feel pretty good. I'd been in like, um, the job I had in Philadelphia it was academic. It was, I mean, it was working in the education system, like doing like, back then it was called distance learning, but it had to do with broadcasting television shows to inner city schools. So like a cost effective way of getting education to like a vast audience. And, um, but funding ran out of that, and so I was out of a job after, you know, almost a year. And um, so going to look, work in a restaurant seemed like a fun, you know, diversion and maybe a path. And it has so happened in Sun Valley, Idaho, where my business partner Tom Harvey, that's he was the one who was there, and um, I forget what brought him there, but he was there like a year right out of college and loving it, doing his thing, skiing and working, you know, um, in some kind of restaurant. So he made it sound like it was pretty easy to go move forward that way. I did that. He was right, you know, immediately, like the first two places I went to hired me. I had no experience. <laughs> I admit I didn't, I wasn't completely honest about my experience. I'd said I'd worked in restaurants before, figuring I could catch up, you know. You know, I, that wasn't, it didn't work out quite that way, but I did catch up. And I ended up staying there for three years, working in different restaurants, um, kind of each time doing like better than the last time and um, moving higher up. And I really thought that that was gonna be like my thing. And I thought it was going to be there. And then um, started hitting that ceiling of where you can go, you know, in a restaurant, in a small resort town. Or, and um, I had an offer to become a partner in a restaurant, pretty much a working partner. And um, I was encouraged to go talk to some, you know, um, another guy in town who kind of like knew everybody and knew how the whole thing worked and he just was kind of like somebody to go to for advice and he was like no way like get out of here you know take that you know whatever money you were going to contribute you know you know go go to culinary school if you really think you want to do that and then work anywhere in the world come back here and you know but don't just dig in you know and um and so i Followed that advice and started looking at culinary schools, which took me to San Francisco, um, the California Culinary Academy. That was um, that was a good experience. You know, that was basically a two-year program. Includes an internship that you know of your choosing. I did that. I, you know, I said I wasn't going to go back to school. This didn't feel like school. There were a lot of you know, fairly easy academics to do, there, but there was a lot of, you know, work to do too. You know, a lot of hours you gotta put in if you're gonna take it serious. And um, I did, you know, I had a, 
I had a good time doing it, but I, I worked hard and um, was pretty satisfied with what I got out of it. Um, just backing up, this is after living and working three years in Sun Valley. So I had three years of restaurant experience to know that this was a, a good fit for me. Mm -hmm. They don't require that in culinary school. They, you know, some of them don't require any experience. A lot of them encourage you know, at least a couple months. And, um, and so the people I was in school with, it was a wide range of people. It was kids coming out of high school who um, you know, weren't going to go to college, but they needed to do something. There were adults who had you know, career, career switching and stuff like that. There were people wanting to be food writers and all, you know, all kinds of stuff. So, um, so that experience was great, and I liked living in San Francisco. I chose that school because I wanted to live in San Francisco. I didn't want to go upstate New York or you know, anywhere back east because I spent so much time back east already. And um, I thought the West Coast was kind of where a, good, a lot of food innovation was coming from. And I, all this time, I've been interested in wine. You know, working in the restaurants got me more exposure. I was thrilled to be able to, to buy wine at you know, what I considered like deep discount, you know, wholesale pricing by working in restaurants. But, um, and then, of course, there, depending on the restaurant you work at, there tend to be a lot of um, perks like free drinks and stuff like that. So there was a lot of that going on. And, um, and yeah, so in San Francisco, the culinary school experience, also working on the side, I did some, um, I guess it's called contract feeding. I did part-time where, where I worked at a, for like the Wells Fargo Bank, for, well for the food, contract food company that um, you know feeds various cafeterias and stuff like that I, I did the occasional work for like the the executive dining room so they have a full-time chef but when he has to like do a dinner for like the executives or whatever he I'd be one of his extra hands and stuff and so that was kind of fun and it showed me a totally different side of, of the industry the food industry mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be like you're working New Year's Eve and all the holidays. It's more nine to five or eight to four or whatever. So I was like, oh, this is cool. And they pay pretty well. There's no glamor in it. You know, you don't like what drew, drew me to the restaurant scene wasn't in contract feeding. I mean, even the name is pretty, pretty kind of scary. <laughs> and, you know, most people don't. You know, cafeterias like university school cafeterias, lunch food, casinos. Maybe that falls under the same category. I don't know, but all that was like, or yeah, cruise ship dining things like that. In culinary school, those types of places did try to recruit, and you know, it was not. Most people walked very far, you know, in the other direction of that. And um, yeah, in culinary school, for the internship, I chose a pretty, what I thought was a pretty high-end restaurant. It's called Jardinaire. And um, that's where I stuck it out. And then, um, and, you know, unless things are a bad fit, you know, you continue on. Mm -hmm. So I was working there after school and, you know, finished up and everything. Um, that was a hard job for me. That was uh, all the other jobs I had 
were way more about, um, well, they, it was more like, it was fun, you know, it was, there was a party atmosphere, some of it excessive, but this was the first restaurant I'd been in where, you know, there, there was no, um, definitely no drinking on the job, definitely um, a high level, uh, you know, of excellence, uh, the expectations, like, you don't, you don't come late, you come early, you stay late, you, you get everything done, you're always hustling, you're always, I mean, te you know, pretty much everyone's always like behind and just struggling to keep up. And then at the end of the day, you go home completely worked. And I mean, that was my experience. I can't say that for everybody. But the people I worked with, it was a pretty tense, competitive environment. And, um, you know, it, it didn't look like anyone ever was having fun in that kitchen. Um, Again, that's my perspective of it, you know. And um, it was also, yeah, I mean, it was, I guess that's all I'll say about that. I did work um, after there. I did move to a different restaurant, less pressure. I knew some people already there who were encouraging me to, to come, so I did that. And it was good, it was fast paced. Um, still kind of was serious, you know, like everyone's taking their job much more serious. And, um, and definitely, I'd say two thirds of the people there were clearly in it to advance and, you know, all had the, their goals of opening their own restaurant. That was still, I think, my goal too. Part of why I went to culinary school is they set you up with a, um, you basically work on a project the entire time while learning all the specific things, obviously cooking skills and stuff like that, and, but management, a lot of management and a lot of um, business plan development, concept, stuff like that. And so I walked out of there with like something I had made with, with other, you know, a project I'd worked with other people on, but like me, I, I forget, maybe four or five of us, but we had like a blueprint for a restaurant. and you know, of our making. And so, you know, to make it purely my own, I would just need to tweak some things in there. And obviously, whatever demographic I was in, I, you know, I, I, or was doing, I would just reapply that to it. I mean, I, I had all the tools, mm -hmm. and that felt very empowering and all that. At the same time, like, you know, it, it seemed like a crazy thing to do. <laughs> like, it didn't seem, my best use of my own time. And, um, but I was still, like, that's the course I've chosen. Mm -hmm. And, um, but when I was doing that internship at Jardinere, at some point, I don't remember how it happened, but, but the chef, the owner, Tracy, I, either she saw my interest or I had told her, I don't know when it came up, but she knew I was interested in wine and she started including me on some of the staff, like the front of the house trainings when like a, like a wine pro came in to do a tasting. And um, the most memorable one I got to do was um, a comparison of Oregon and California Pinots. And I, I can't remember which exact bottle it was, but it was a Chehalem bottle you know, we're doing blind, and um, it just stood out, like, wow, this is really good, and, you know, different, and, you know, 
so uh, mid nine. No, this was actually now late nineties, and um, probably these are current vintage wines. But like the, the California wines I'd been drinking because that's all I was drinking, and um, you know, at that point I think they were already getting hot. You know, higher alcohol definitely compared to Oregon, but that was like it was still advancing towards that extreme level of alcohol and um, so it was, it was way more subtle nuanced wine that just invited a lot of questions and, um, and so that kind of stuck with me and I, and I got into um, you know I started visiting more wineries being so close to Napa and Sonoma going on wine trips on the weekends or you know when I wasn't working uh, some some students from the school when I was still there, we all like volunteered to go up and like cook at harvest or you know do things. There was a wine teacher, a very influential wine teacher. We all took a couple of weeks of classes from, who introduced us to a lot of different places, and so we felt like we had this kind of access, and um, you know it was fun. I um, continued on that, you know buying wines locally at like the local wine shops and um, I discovered that wine um, wine shop the wine club which was really cool you know just stacks of cases of wine everywhere even in the bathroom and you know right next to a six dollar bottle of wine was a four hundred dollar bottle of wine and you know like you just walk through there and like it's magical and then they have like a separate room off to the side with tons of open bottles and it's just on the honor system you just pour like a taste of anything you want to try and and you write it down and they charge you like a couple bucks a sip whatever it was it wasn't much and so I would on days off I'd go there and you know lug home on the in my backpack you know several bottles of wine and shove them in my closet I lived in a studio um, it was not ideal storage and so that started piling up too and at some point my girlfriend was like like this is you know what are you doing here you know our closet was our closet they had to walk through to get to the bathroom it was like it was it was like a choke point with with boxes of wine and i don't i don't mean like anything crazy but like you know at least like maybe a dozen cases or so but we didn't have that kind of room. And um, so uh, my friend, Tom Harvey, also, who went to culinary school with me, um, he, that's right, I didn't tell you that. He went to college with me, and then he moved to Sun Valley, which I went to. And then when I went to culinary school, he ended up going to the culinary school in San Francisco. So we kind of had these like parallel paths which influenced each other, you know. Mm -hmm. At some point, he was ahead of me, and at some point, I was ahead of him, and um, kept kind of happening that way, you know. We were good friends in college. I, I don't know about best friends or anything like that, but we were definitely good friends always. And um, so um, he had a similar issue, buying more wine than he's drinking. And, you know, some of it was nice wine that we, like, planned on, like, drinking later on. So heard about wine storage facilities and um, made a couple calls 
they're all full. You know, some places don't even answer the phone. It, it, well, you know, they're not advertised. They're in weird places. Um, but we found one across the river or across the bay in um, in Oakland called Subterranean, and um, he had room. His name was Joe Billman, and so he had very narrow, specific hours that we could come. You know, he's open like three days a week, you know, not at 10, or probably like at noon until like four or three. We go there, you know, he chats us up quite a bit. We weren't his normal client. He had a lot of clients, but we weren't his normal client. We're a bit younger. And um, I think he was kind of curious about us. And, um, but he also, you know, he come from a restaurant background. And he was very boastful about his business, how much better it was than working in a restaurant. And he shared that, like, he just basically bragged about, you know, what a good setup this was. And, um, you know, that was kind of interesting, you know. And um, from my experience living in Sun Valley, Idaho, a small town, everyone's looking for, like, something to do there, like a, like a, a good niche to fill and, like, one of the, I, I, somebody once told me like anytime you go to a small town that you're you know going to live in or already living in or whatever, you know open the phone book and look for a business. Like I, this might have been the, the example might be a chimney sweep. Somebody's like look and see if there's a chimney sweep. Hey, there isn't. Like you could be the chimney sweep. You know, like like that's how you find it. Or you know you kind of see what's missing from your previous experiences. So. Um, that's gonna, I guess, when I get up to Oregon, that's gonna play more of a, a role. But I liked that idea, and I was, that's always, so I started, I was thinking about that wherever I, I was going to. And I did, before moving to San Francisco from Sun Valley, check out other Western towns. I kind of thought that that was maybe, you know, I went down to Durango, um, you know, I, I spent quite a bit of time moving around with some friends, snowboarding in other mountain resort towns and stuff like that. And everybody knew somebody somewhere, so we'd go visit and stay on couches and stuff. That was fun. I didn't find anywhere that really jumped out at me. And, um, and then I found a lot of places that I didn't like. One thing about Sun Valley, Idaho, while we were there, is they were growing. They've been growing. and. Um, you know, they had growing pains, growing problems, like the infrastructure and how do you do it. It's in a narrow valley. You can't grow just in every direction. It's not like, you know, maybe places like in Utah, which you can just spread out or you know, like a lot of places. Um, so they followed, they looked, they looked to a, another ski resort town that maybe had, was ahead of them, but followed a similar path. And that was Aspen. And so they were like looking, how do we grow our, our town like to still be a great place and all that. And you know, Aspen seemed like a good example. So, so they looked for, for places that 
were ahead of them, you know. And then when I was living in San Francisco, I heard a lot of the same kind of language when um, people were talking about Sonoma. How, well, Sonoma is just like, you know, whatever, 20 years or 10 years behind Napa. You go to, you know, go into Napa and it can be like Disneyland, you know, depending on what wineries you choose to go to. You know, like tour buses, like huge tours of people. You know, the, the person giving the winery tour is asking some very, you know, giving out very basic information and like, you know, it just, it, some of those things didn't feel very um, genuine or I don't know. It, whereas you go to Sonoma and like, you know, you pull up a dirt road and like, you know, walk around this property, little barn, you know, like you're not sure where to go and then you kind of push something, a door open and there's like a guy, oh yeah, come in, you know. Or you have to ring a bell and a guy comes out of his living room or something and pours wine for you. It just felt, it definitely felt like a different age, like it hadn't aged the same as Napa. And so, but they were saying Sonoma's just behind is all it is and it's catching up. So, um, San Francisco, I was enjoying living there. I liked what I was doing, even though it was hard. I, I had friends there that I had made there, like new friends, as well as you know some people I had known who also ended up there. My girlfriend was doing her school and finishing that up and enjoying it. You know, we, we had fun there. Um, I started to not have fun. I got... Um, I had like, uh, I got beat up um, in uh, one night and uh, pretty bad. And, um, and then like, and there was unfortunately like a long recovery to that. I had, I, I had a busted up uh, nose that had to get, I got bad medical advice about what to do and ended up having to go get it rebroken like way after it had healed, and that was more more of a, a bad experience than the actual, you know, um, street crime. And, um, and it set me back. It was hard to work um, with dealing with that recovery in my face. So I was dealing with that, and um, there were some smaller incidents that, you know, things, we started to notice more things happening like that weren't that fun. And um, some, some of my coworkers had some really bad stuff happen to them. One of them, you know, ended up, you know, going back home to wherever he was from. And, and um, everything was going well for him until he, you know, he got like essentially carjacked and harassed pretty, pretty bad um, by the people that carjacked him. And um, so I was like, I'm kind of, I don't like this place anymore. Let's you know, oh, and I was looking like, well, like, back in my head, I was like, well, I'm, I like my girlfriend a lot. Maybe I'm, maybe we do the next thing, you know. So I, I started looking at places to live, like not an apartment, and I went and actually looked at like a place around the corner. I had no, I, I had nothing. I didn't know anything about real estate, um, mortgages, how it worked what kind of money you needed. 
I wasn't even really that up on the San Francisco market, but this was in the late 90s. And um, I looked at a place about twice the size of our studio, and it was like $800,000. It was actually more than that. It was like $850,000 and needed work. And I just, and the guy showed me like what I need for a down payment, which I didn't have anything close to that. And then what my mortgage payments are, which I wasn't making anything near that. And so I was like, oh, like this is never gonna happen. And so then we knew people that were moving like further outside of San Francisco, like, oh, we're over in Oakland now, or you know, we're out Daly City and these other places that, and so they're commuting. And everyone's telling me it's not so bad. And I'm kind of, a, I like being centrally located. So I just didn't even want to consider that. And, um, and then, um, I don't know, one day, and I think both um, Molly, my girlfriend, one day we just both kind of came home and like, let's get out of here. And, um, you know, where? And I'm like, what about Portland? And I'd never been there, but I'd heard some good things about it. I had a, one of my old bosses from a restaurant was from here, and um, he was like, oh, you'd like it. It's kind of cool. It's not Seattle, um, but it's got a good vibe, and there's all these cool bridges, and like, there's just like a, a good vibe. I think you'd be a good fit. And, and I you know, kind of just kept that also in my pocket. And um, I do have a couple relatives here. I have an aunt who lives in Corvallis. And I have, um, she has two children, um, one living um, in Tigard. And then, um, and then the other, at that time, was living here in Portland, in the southeast. So we went up and visited and um, liked everything we saw. And um, what did we do? We drove up in a U-Haul, like a month later, you know, parked it at a, in her driveway, and then like looked in the Willamette Weekly for, for places. And, you know, went to three places, one of them being on Hawthorne, and the landlord who had just bought the place, like hit it off with, with Molly, and, um, told us we could have the place. It was like much cheaper than where we were living in San Francisco and much larger. And um, we moved, you know, we just moved the U-Haul in like the next day. It was super easy. So everything felt pretty good. What we saw about Portland, we liked, you know, like this was in the fall and we're driving along Hawthorne and there was a Ben and Jerry's there. It's raining and in a kind of cold and, you know, not that fun weather to be out in. And there was like a couple groups of people sitting outside of Ben and Jerry's eating ice cream, you know, in the rain. Like, what are they doing? So in San Francisco, you have all these opportunities, all these great, like, um, bands come through, um, you know, art things, and, you know, like, you can do a lot of stuff in San Francisco. A lot of people don't do it, like it just because it's it's like people like having it there, but they don't like participating. Mm -hmm. And what we saw here were people were, people were participating. Everything we went to was well attended, you know, and, um, and people were enthusiastic, all kinds of stuff. So 
we were really drawn to that and immediately loved it here. I just didn't have a good plan about what I was doing here. And um, so I made some calls about the contract feeding stuff since I, that, that chef I'd talked to before about it, he told me, oh yeah, if you go up there, I can get you a good job. Like I could get you a job in the Nike, you know, executive dining room. It's like, oh, that'd be cool. You know, I was like, yeah, you could, you know, cook for Michael Jordan or whatever. And like, yeah, that sounds like that'd be really cool. And so he did do that. He made the calls and put me in touch with the people um, in Oregon for that same company that handled that. And they were, it sounded like they were going to go forward with that. That just, everything had, you know, um, is a, you know, this is a corporate kind of a thing. So it, it wasn't like what I was used to, which is you go to the back door of a restaurant and you ask for the chef and then you say, hey, can I work here? And you get hired or, you know, they try you out, whatever it is. But like, that's how it was in, from my past experience. This was like, you go through all these weird channels, you wait a lot. And so while waiting, I started thinking about what else I could do, or could I do something else in the meantime? And um, I also looked about filling in some loose ends, one of which was what to do with my wine, because we had left it with subterranean uh, in Oakland. So I'm like, well, I'll just find a wine storage place up here to then get it. You know, I'll have to go down there and get it. And that proved difficult. There, you know, there weren't, I opened the phone book and there weren't any of those, which I was like, oh, that's interesting. So then I called like some wine shops and I got various reactions, you know. Um, most of the reactions I got when I asked people from wine shops or any, anybody was kind of a, like a chuckle, like, kind of like a funny look, you know, like what, you know, what? no, like why is this? here or anywhere like people they weren't even used to that concept of wine storage so um like if you got all the money to store wine why isn't it at home I'm like well I, you know, in my case i i don't have a home and you know don't have a wine cellar nor do i have enough wine but um yeah so we i got some laughter about it and but then i also got some people like no but there should be you know and um so, so I got some strong reactions, and um, I chewed on that some more while kind of waiting for the phone to ring, telling me I could come work for that company. And it just started to make more and more sense. You know, I think I, at that point, I was able, there was enough stuff online, like online, I, I feel like I could, it was a good resource. It was starting to become a good resource for information. You know, this is again like, this, so this is 1999 when I was here first. That's when I moved here. Um, and yeah, phone book was still probably the number one like source, but you could get a lot of information online. And um, I did look up about wine storage facilities and saw like there's different ones around the country. Um, you know, and, you know, checked out if they had a website, a lot of them didn't, but, um, 
you know, what kind of, just, I just found, looked for all the information I could get. And, um, and then I started looking around town at different parts of town. You know, I'm living in Southeast, but everyone's talking about Northwest and then the up and coming Pearl. Um, Southwest was too mysterious, too like sprawling, and it didn't f have any kind of um, positive vibe for me. So, um, so I think it, I think at that point, I called Tom Harvey, and because I didn't feel like he wasn't really he wasn't in the middle of doing anything. I think he was in a transition period. He had broken up with. Um, his uh, girlfriend. They had parted ways, um, which they, you know, they, having also been housemates, that made it kind of complicated. Or, I think he was, yeah, he was in the middle of doing his thing, but um, figuring it out. So I gave him a call, and I think he was even like in the process of driving. He's you know cross country back from the East Coast visiting his family or something. And I'm like, you want to come up to Oregon to Portland and uh, maybe try to open a wine storage facility? And he was and he was just like, yeah, you know. And so so he be you know he came here first and we hung out you know stayed with us and hung out for a few days while we drove around looking at different parts of town. I had already scoped out like some interesting places. Be one of them, the, the 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 most attractive, being like right where we are, um, what's now kind of called the Produce Row District. Um, back then, you know, cent well, the larger area, what Central East Side Industrial District, um, and it was close within walking distance of where I was living at the time on Hawthorne. And just all these old, big old warehouses, you know, kind of neat looking, but also very quiet. And um, when he got here, I took him around and we parked. And I, there was a one building with a sign in it, you know, saying like so much space for, for lease and um, like 20,000 square feet, which seemed like a lot. And, and then there was also there was like a liquor application thing in the, in the window for some wine company. Something was going on in that building. But you know, it was like the only signage on it was clearly like old dated signage. And then there was a conversation, there were some people outside in the street like talking, like a guy talking to somebody in a car, you know, rah, 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 all animated and everything. And then that conversation ended and this gentleman who was doing the talking from outside the car. The car drove off. The guy turned to us and, you know, he was like an older, um, uh, he, was, he was Greek. I didn't know he was Greek, but he, he was Greek and he had a thick accent. And he was, and he was like, hey, guys, what's up? You know, and we're like, what's up? And you're like, oh, I was just looking at the building. And he's like, yeah, what do you want? You know, and like, oh. We're looking at the space, you know, interested about the space. And he's like, well, it's my building. What do you want to do? Oh, we want to do wine storage. He's like, wine storage? That's what I want to do. That's what I'm going to do. We're like, okay. He's like, oh, you can do it. You can do it. I'll let you do it. And like, so we were kind of like scratching our head with him. His name was Dino. Um, he was the owner of the building. 
Dino Ariston, he had a, um, a wine business that he had recently relocated to that building. He bought the building in order to relocate from um, the B&O building, now known as the um, Olympic Mills building, just like a block from here. And um, <clears throat> he had his company, Domain Selections, and they were, you know, they were growing. They, they outgrew whatever spot they had in the B&O building. And then now they had this huge warehouse that they only needed like a small part of it. But, you know, I think back then buying a building made a lot of sense if you could come up with the money for the down payment. Buildings around here were cheap. You know, you had city liquidators, produce row, Sheridan Market, which is still here and doing well. Uh, a lot of weird businesses were down here, you know, like, and in fact, when we were looking for other sites, we saw a lot of, inside of a lot of weird buildings, you know, one was like breeding fish, all these huge fish tanks and all these things bubbling and gurgling and like really humid and kind of creepy and in a lot of empty buildings, a lot of, a lot of rat traps and things to give us signs of what it would be like. And so um, anyway, that building seemed really cool and he seemed like a nice guy. It was great that he was in the wine industry, you know, and, and he seemed very fatherly. Like he was like, oh yeah, come on, you know, I'll show you. And, and it was just friendly and definitely um, handshake kind of person, you know, didn't, everything was like, oh yeah, yeah, don't worry about that, we'll get to that, or, you know, which, which I liked. I liked that kind of um, arrangement and um, I felt very easy around him. So, um, so we just moved forward. We did have to rent the entire basement of the building, which was 20,000 square feet way more than we envisioned needing. And so, um, so we made a plan to build it out, you know, maybe two thirds at the beginning and then see where it goes. We had to sign, you know, like a minimum five year lease, which seemed like an eternity. It was just like, a, you know, all of a sudden we were doing things that put us out of our comfort level. You know, we're, Let's see, I was 29. I was, I was getting ready to turn 30, and um, all of a sudden, all these like big life things were happening. You know, I'm starting a business, I'm going to sign this lease. Um, my relationship was progressing. I asked my girlfriend to marry me. Um, she said yes. I, one thing I didn't mention about me was I. Uh, don't have, I didn't have a driver's license. So I was like, well, I'm turning 30, like, and, 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 and Tom said flat out, like, I'll go into business with you, but you gotta get your driver's license. So I'm not gonna be your chauffeur. Cause that was a thing with a lot of my friends. Like I got a lot of crap about not ever being a designated driver or, you know, everyone's driving me. And, um, and I'd been able to do that 
like living in a small town like in Sun Valley. I lived um, for a year in Alabama, in Huntsville, Alabama. I'd, I'd lived in other places where like it was kind of crazy not to have a driver's license. And so, um, so that was a bit, to me that was big getting my driver's license. And um, it ended up being like not a big deal, but I thought it was gonna be a big deal. So, and, and so at that same time too, we talked about getting a house for ourselves. And it, so all at once, I'm like doing all the, the big life moves. And, um, and I, for me, I think that's how I was able to do it because um, I had been introduced to doing a lot of multitasking from the restaurant work and I was good at that. I was good at being in stressful situations. I was good at handling multiple things at once. And, or at least I think I was good. I enjoyed it. Like that was the part that made it, you know, tolerable and um, worth doing. So opening a business, planning my life forward with my wife, getting a house together, you know, doing like the grown up things you do, all felt great, you know, to do all at once. And so, like, year 30 was a busy year. And it, and it never felt too busy, you know. And so with the build-out of our space for wine storage, um, we did a lot of that ourselves. We hired, you know, we didn't just hire a contractor and give them a vision. We didn't know what the vision was, really. We modeled it what we from off of Subterranean in, in Oakland, what we saw there. We also model after what we would like. You know, we, we're, we're consumers, so let's build it for us. And so that ended up being kind of like the thing we always circle back to. Well, like, is this what we want? Like, is this how I would do it? Is this like the place I would want to give my business to? And um, that kind of guided, I think, a lot of the decisions. The building is really cool. Um, it's got a lot of old character. You know, it's one of those big timber warehouses that you just don't see timbers like that anywhere else anymore. And it had fallen into disrepair over the years, so it mostly needed cleaning up. You know, scraping paint off of the, the, the beams to get at the, the rich old wood, cleaning it up. And then our build-out was pretty basic, you know, building rooms and lockers. We had to decide what we thought people wanted. We had to guess, make a lot of guesses about things. And, and so we just did. And um, let's see. You know, it, we didn't know how it was going to go. Dino, our landlord, um, introduced us to a lot of people along the way, some of which were our very first customers. We, um, so when we were open for business, it, it took actually only about three months. We just did all the, we just, I mean, I, I put in some late nights doing it. I, I mean, I still, like nowadays, like I, sometimes I find like papers and notebooks or like a file on a computer that's my writing that I don't recognize and like, and like diagrams for, you know, like 
boxes and, and like different cubbies, you know, lockers, so how they would fit and different configurations and how much space a person would need between two lockers, you know, like an aisle, um, all kinds of considerations. And then things that like, you know, I, was, I also went down like the wrong path with some things. So like notes that didn't ever go anywhere else, you know. I had an idea that we would um, maybe do catering to all these people since we both had, a, at that point, a food background, and this is the, the same kind of clientele. Um, we did do that, but um, that was, I, I didn't know what kind of role that would play if that was gonna take up a bigger chunk of our time. I still, all this time, thought that, because I, like I said, it only took about three months to be up and running. I still thought I was gonna be, you know, work in the contract feeding, sector and um, but the, the further I got along with getting wine storage going the further away that it's like I don't need that as much but, but I was open to it it just it, that never went anywhere I never got the, the, the call to start yeah the year 2000 then I Tom and I got it going um, it started slow we didn't know what we were doing so we were just trying things out. We did, um, we did try, and I think successfully do it, like create a, a facade of a wine community. I mean, we, because we were new to town, and this at that point was not a wine town. It was a beer town, and we were told that repeatedly. Um, you know. People, yeah, that, that's, that's, I mean, we were going out, we were drinking beer. We were, the, the, the distillery thing, you, you had Clear Creek, and I think that was it. And that was very boutique y and special. They weren't, that wasn't like cocktail culture. That was like fine little sips of things, you know, the eau de vies and brandies and stuff. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was all about the beer. And, um, even though we're so close to the Willamette, you know, um, Valley. And in um, Washington wine wasn't playing a big role back then. You had Woodward Canyon and Leonetti. I mean, in our orbit, we weren't seeing a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Dino sold Woodward Canyon, and that's probably why we knew about that as soon as we did. But you know, it didn't play the bigger role. Caillou wasn't around. You, you didn't have that kind of like culty stuff going on. Um, yeah, it was in this part of town, like I said, it was kind of quiet and a little creepy, you know, which a lot of shadows and which was nice. I mean, that's part of the appeal. And um, so, yeah, where do we go? I mean, like, a lot of years have passed between now and then, and um, the wine storage thing, you know, we outgrew what we built, and we had to build more. We saw pretty early on, I think at the three-year mark or so, that our lease was a loose and like a weak link to our business, so we went back and easily got an extended lease. Um, we 
had to give up some stuff. We had to pay more, but we at least got our security. You know, trying to identify, okay, what, where are we going and like what's going to be important to us. And so, um, you know, all the while we're, we're meeting, you know, like a lot of our clientele, it was a whole range of people and um, not, I think, what we were expecting and not what a lot of people were expecting. We have a lot of industry people. We, like one thing we don't have and, and didn't have back then were like restaurants. I think that, you know, we, we assumed that there'd be a lot of restaurants wanting to store wine with us. And a lot of people thought that, like, oh, you probably have a lot of restaurants. Like, no, we had a couple. And, um, gosh, I don't even remember their names. I know, I know they don't exist anymore. Um, yeah, it, you know, it turns out restaurants that had the money to have a wine cellar have the, the money, like the space, to flaunt it. So, you know, they have, you walk into the restaurant and there's a big glass wall with a beautiful, you know, warm, inviting cellar behind it of all those bottles. And so, um, um, yeah, we, there just wasn't that here. You know, I think it was Atwater's was a restaurant up where the city grill is now. They had a big, they had that kind of a setup. Um, mostly our clients that were calling us, though, were, were yeah, um, people who were into wine that didn't have big home cellars and um, people who lived in apartments and people who were, you know, starting small. It, it, it was a whole range of people. You know, for some people, it, the money, you know, we weren't very expensive, but, um, you know, for some people it was a big deal. For other people, like, it wasn't at all. They had huge home sellers. Some, some did that they then overfilled and then they needed to bring to us. Um, we also got a lot of phone calls, like, for odd jobs. We weren't doing anything but storage, but people were asking us to do things. Like, at some point, people thought to call us for things. Like, where do I buy this? Or where do I get that? Or who do I talk to about moving my wine cellar? And, or selling it, even. Um, for most of those things, you know, we tried to be helpful. And, but then when we started getting, like, the same phone call, like, like selling wine cabinets to the home. Like, why don't, like, if no one else is selling them and everyone keeps calling us and we're not even advertising, why don't we do that? So, like, we did that, you know, and so we started selling things. And, um, I mean, it probably wasn't, it definitely wasn't enough to do as a business in and of itself, but we started seeing the benefits of having, like, all these little side businesses of our business. And, um, you know, so that proved successful enough to continue doing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then doing, uh, moving wine for people. That we got some phone calls from these companies that do it nationwide, like relocating home sellers for people or whatever the reason. And this one gentleman from a company, Western Carriers, his name was Joel Rubens. He introduced himself, explained what he does, and explained that like 
in other parts of the country, like mostly in California, um, there are places like us, wine storage places, that occasionally he needs to hire to do something for him, like to go pack up a cellar, bring it back to their warehouse, put it on a pallet, wrap it up, and then this guy will have one of his trucks come and pick it up. It's all like refrigerated. You know, we're storing it refrigerated at 55 degrees. It gets picked up and moved at 55 degrees. And so we started getting contracted to do that kind of work. And also going the other way where we receive it and deliver. You know, we were movers. And um, that, you know, that wasn't part of the game plan or anything like that. But, you know, like when we're like slowly like adding our our wine storage client base, and it's slowly, you know, maybe a couple a week. It, you know, it was it was nice to get these little income boosts from these odd jobs, but we just couldn't predict how often they'd be coming, you know, anything like that. So we left off with you talking about um, kind of the growing side businesses that were in addition to the wine storage, which I think is where John came in, right? Because I remember John talking about uh, doing some, doing packing up some sellers. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah. Sounds like a pretty interesting job. So at some point, I mean, the first couple of years, well, the, yeah, those first few years, you know, people weren't beating down the door to get in. The phone wasn't ringing off the hook. Um, you know, at the same time, like, beating the bushes didn't really feel appropriate. First of all, we're not the type of people that like doing sales calls of any kind. Um, I think we briefly tried advertising because when you open a business, when you get a, a business phone number and you know you register with the, with the state and everything, all of a sudden you get a lot of other businesses trying to sell you services and products and crap. You know, not all crap, but we got a lot of the, the latter. And, um, <laughs> So yeah, I think we did try, like I think we put an ad in like the back of Wine Spectator, like like little tiny classified ad and one issue, like, something like one issue, maybe it was four, but you know, it cost us like $2,000, which for us was a lot of money. And um, you know, maybe, maybe we got a, a customer from it. That was one thing, like when we did do advertising, we didn't feel like, we didn't see the immediate effect of it. There definitely is like a butterfly effect, uh, you know, like a, you know, if enough people, if people start hearing about it, maybe like, maybe that, maybe it's not reaching your customer, but maybe it's reaching somebody who tells your next customer, you know, like, oh, you should, that sounds like a problem, maybe you should call those guys about, you know, you got too much wine, mm -hmm. you know, to store, whatever. Um, so, you know, we, we tried things out, and same with the additional stuff, you know, to keep busy. And, um, but then we also, as like the, the setup stuff had kind of like receded, and we were more about like day-to-day -day management, we also saw that we don't both need to be here. And so we started doing like three days on, four days off. So. For probably the first 10 years, that's how it was. Maybe even longer, I don't, I don't remember. And it, obviously, if, if things came up, like if we were busy, we would both come in. If somebody hired us to do a wine move, 
maybe one of us would come in and go do that. And we would borrow um, one of the vehicles from Dino, our landlord. Um, you know, I mentioned he was very helpful with us introducing us to people, but he also let us use things like his vehicles occasionally when he didn't need them. He had, you know, some warehouse equipment that, you know, pallet jacks and things like that that he let us use. I mean, he was just, he was very generous. And, um, you know, I think a, a good chunk of our success, you know, was from him because, you know, it's expensive starting a business and all these overhead things like can get in the way of it, you know. And so having him being there, yeah, helped us out a lot. He had um, uh, Don Heisman worked for him or worked with him. I'm not sure what, you know, the proper way to say it is, but Don was um, also there and he offered advice occasionally. Sometimes, um, sometimes it didn't feel like advice. Sometimes, <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it, it bit a little hard, but, you know, he offered blunt advice. And, um, you know, I, I'm thankful for that as well. And um, there were some, in the other side of our building, like I said, Dino didn't, so we were in the basement, that's 20,000 square feet. The, the footprint of the building is 20,000 square feet. So, and it's a one-story building. So Dino's business probably took up um, a third of that. At the other end of the building was this other wine business that kept more to themselves, and it was Zancanella. And um, Greg Zancanella had known Dino. I think he may have also come from the B&O building before that. I might, I might be wrong on that. But he had just started up a couple months before us. Um, in that building, because like I mentioned, when we first saw the building, there was a, uh, like a, an OLCC label on the, you know, in the window saying that there was an application to, you know, for a license. It was his. So he was running his business on the other side, but he, he had a different model and he was mostly importing things himself, from, you know, containers from Italy. He later grew on to doing, you know, stuff from France as well, and maybe even other places, maybe domestic. I don't remember it, but maybe. But back then, it was all Italian stuff and pretty affordable. And so that was a great resource to check out wine and stuff. He wasn't instrumental in, in the growth of our business, but it added to, like, what we liked about it. You know, we were getting, you know, getting to try wine, you know, if, we, if, if any of these guys had a wine um, tasting event for the industry, you know, we could go to that. We always went to those things back then. And, um, you know, it was fun. And, you know, occasionally a dinner, but less likely those types of things. I think back then they weren't doing a lot of that either, some of it. But Dino and he introduced us to some of the wine shops. In fact, as many as we wanted. I mean, as many as we were up for. And so that was, we thought like, you know, I told you we did a little advertising um, that didn't seem to be worth it. We, you know, poked around. Mainly we, the most we did was go to introduce ourselves to the people at the wine shops. 
Dino did some of those introductions, and then the rest we just you know knocked on the door, introduced ourselves, gave some flyers, and uh, stuff like that. Now, when I said there wasn't wine storage here, that's you know partially true. I think it's mostly true, but Liner and Nelson at their older location had like a back room with some lockers. They didn't want it. Like they didn't, when we talked to them, they told us like, no, they, we want, we need that space for our wine shop, you know, for, for the wines we're selling. And they were having a hard time getting rid of that because there were people in there storing. But those people weren't their best customers. So it's not like they were keeping their best customers happy and, and they weren't getting wine sales out of it. So they were content, you know, letting us take that business. Um, they, uh, they wanted something for it. They wanted, you know, even though it was serving them, they still wanted uh, like a deal to make a deal about it. Um, which um, wasn't that big of a deal, but it, it was not a, a freebie. And, um, and then uh, um, Great Wine Buys, um, that was on um, Broadway, and I, they had wine storage. And we were worried about um, before we even got up and running, we were worried about like stepping on toes or this or that. And so um, we went and checked it out. It didn't seem like they were doing anything that was going to overlap with us, but we still kept that kind of quiet about what, you know, we introduced ourselves as in possibly storing wine with them, which, you know, they probably don't get that every day. You know, even though they, they had a small like, back room. And so they showed us what, what the deal was and this and that. And, and we never told them, you know, who we were. We were being really like secretive about it, you know, because we didn't want to blow our big business idea. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that actually set off some bad blood maybe or some bad feelings when it became quite obvious. I think they saw us at a trade tasting. I'm like, Wait, who are those guys? You know, and then, so we didn't handle that well. You know, I, that's a regret for sure. Um, and then I don't think, there may have been some other places, like some of the groceries out in um, Southwest um, that were doing a little bit of that. But yeah, there was no other wine storage. Mm -hmm. And um, certainly no dedicated wine storage like we were and um, it just it was slow to move you know I did have faith in that the uh, as more Oregon wineries started popping up that that was gonna like it just made sense that that Portland would need a business like this and so it felt like we were gonna like the need was gonna grow and you know and we were going to be there for it and so it's just the you know the, the the pace was not something we knew how to predict you know and it while it was happening it was you know happening slower than we would have liked but when we 
kind of started just doing three days, a three-day work week, it was easy to kind of not be so worried about it. As long as the business wasn't going down, you know. So we were, we were content with growth. We just weren't fueling it maybe as much as we could have. We were letting it happen naturally. And we met, you know, we had a lot of great clients, you know, that um, some are still with us. Some of our very first clients are with us. Some of them um, are, are good friends. And, um, you know, it, that whole intention to create, like, a, a, um, the facade of a wine community that did work. It, it did require work from us. Like, we had parties. We had wine tastings. We had, um, you know, we did cook, you know, we cooked a lot of food and, like, invited people to come open bottles. You know, we did stuff like that. We started a, an annual Halloween party called Scary Bottle Night. Um, that, everyone liked that. I'm a big Halloween fan, and for me, that was like a, a really cool idea. It was also kind of tapped into, you know, I like the older, scary, crusty bottles. Like, the, you know, they don't have to taste good. You know, they just have to have a good story. And, um, and like, that's, that's where that idea came from and you know but also giving the clients their own way to interpret the party and and that's what happened it, it kind of took off to you know people would put costumes on their bottles of wine like that would qualify it they would bring something without a label like a mystery bottle <clears throat> they would bring really old freakishly bad wines <laughs> But then there'd be good ones, and you know, and, and and you know, those parties started. You know, like the first one was probably less than twenty people. Everyone had a great time, uh, you know, us included, and so um, so we made it like an annual thing. And over the years, um, that had a life of its own. It, you know, it's a big party for us now, meaning it takes a lot of work to do. Um, it's so much work that we stopped doing other events, you know, throughout the year. You know, we were doing like every other month an event because, you know, for 20 people, for 50 people, it's doable. Like, in, in a homegrown way, you know, we don't, you know, we ask people to donate like $10 a person. Back then, we didn't have to bother doing that. Even now, doing that, it doesn't pay for it. It just kind of offsets some of the food cost and stuff like that. But we plan it for a couple weeks. We do the cooking most years. You know, I, we might depart from that. For, this last year was a big one. And um, the first one after COVID, you know, we had to shut it all down during COVID. And um, so this was our, our first year back after COVID. And maybe it was not doing it for a couple years. Um, Maybe it's the, you know, the size of our, of the business and our, and the people coming to these parties. It just was a lot of work, and um, you know, not something I want to. You know, maybe maybe when the whole year rolls around, I'll feel differently. But I, I'm still, you know, thinking about ah, that was a lot of work, and um, and I'm getting older. <laughs> I don't have the energy I had when I was, you know. Trying multitasking everything, you know, when I turned 30. 
I like things moving a bit slower now. And um, like things a little more predictable. So um, yeah, we started having, we started hiring people. It, you know, it, it started off being like, I need an extra hand. Like I, I need to go pack up a wine cellar. I need somebody to watch wine storage, answer the phone and the, the door and stuff like that. Well, Tom and I are doing that. Then we started, you know, we found a, a, a kid who would come whenever we wanted to. Um, a great guy named Jay Rubin was our first employee. I think he was also the first employee later on at Voodoo Donut. And um, he's the one credited, he, he speaks Swahili, and so he was giving like free Swahili lessons one night a week at, out of uh, Voodoo Donut, um, you know, in Old Town. Um, but uh, quite a character and eager to do whatever odd job popped up. And so he became the candidate. He became the guy to, to do these uh, wine deliveries and things like that and pack ups. We, we had some interesting clients sometimes asking us to do interesting things like deliver you know, wine to an airfield just on the other side of the, the Canadian border where a plane lands <laughs> and wine is handed off or drive down to LA you know, a straight cannonball run shot and deliver to a sports team where every um, player is, has to claim like two bottles of their being their own in order to take it across the border. And <laughs> there were, yeah, people came up with creative ways to get wine places, you know. And um, this guy Jay was, he loved doing all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, but that was you know, part time. And then, but we saw the need, like we saw the benefit of having somebody being there to do some of these things for us or with us and got comfortable hiring and paying, you know, for employees and stuff. And I think, I mean, it probably wasn't until like after year 10 that we even like hired a guy to like clean the toilets. And, you know, we were doing, we were just taking that responsibility upon ourselves and we weren't good at it either. Like, you know, we waited till things were bad before we would do them. And so we didn't grow the business at the, the pace that we could have. We didn't take care of it as much as we should have. Uh, we got a lot of help from random people, but usually at the last minute. And, um, you know, didn't really plan ahead too well with, with some of those things, but just let things kind of roll out and respond. At some point, well, all right, so we hired, we had some other good hires, and um, none of these people in the early days were wine people. Some of them had worked like as wine delivery guys, which was how we met them. Um, another guy was um, just like the son of a friend who needed some direction in life, and um, we were, I was asked a favor to hire him. He's a good kid, and he's smart, and um, he worked for us for a while. He was good. Um, he moved on um, eventually. And um, 
we did, you know, like you had mentioned, you know, us, John Suarez um, working for us. John's great. Um, he did kind of come in a bit later, you know, for us, me, like meaning um, we were at that point quite dependent on getting help mm -hmm. from people, especially people who knew wine. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that we started getting asked to do quite a bit of was inventory wine. And Tom, at this point, Tom was married to um, Andrea Shirk, who um, she's a winemaker. She, at that point, was working a lot behind the, she still works behind the scenes, setting up, um, I don't want to say anything wrong here. Like, I don't know enough about where she works or what, but part of what she does is run um, wine tastings for like competitions mm -hmm. and um, sets all that up and she travels for it. And then there's a lot of like computer stuff also that goes on before that, that supports that, that she, and she works for a company that does all that. And so um, she was helping out quite a bit. She could watch the office and things like that back in those earlier days. Um, Tom and I would occasionally take um, vacations together, like go skiing or something like that. Or when we go, like we drive up to Seattle to pack up a wine cellar for a day or two, to, you know, a couple days sometimes. And so, um, yeah, she helped out a lot with that and um, was a good fit because she was into wine and all that. And our clients liked her. Very outgoing and friendly and you could see that when a client came in and he'd light up when he saw her and, you know, that's great. So, um, yeah, we, I don't want to leave anybody out, but I am going to leave people out just because I'm having a hard time remembering. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, we had people over the years and this inventory work, Andrea was good at doing it. And because um, it's kind of like, parallel with what she was doing for her work. And um, we got asked more and more to do that. Not only are we storing wine for people, there are people that don't live here that want us to store wine, but then they have to rely on us to know what they have here. You know, they order wine and have it shipped. They don't know if it ever arrived. They don't know, like we receive it and put it in their space, but like we're not opening boxes. It's kind of a liability with that. And, you know, we don't have like a, a barcode system, or we don't, you know, we don't have anything sophisticated to kind of make that a simple process. And again, it's a, like, a, you know, I don't want to say store at your own risk, but it's like it's up to you what you're doing with the storage. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't even have to be wine; it should be, you know. But people are storing beer. Some people store booze, you know, whiskeys and things like that. I know like a lot of people have like a cigar case or something in there, which similar uh, climate control needs maybe. You know, I, it didn't really matter to us as long as there aren't like toxic chemicals, dead bodies, you know, we joked about that a lot, you know, stuff like that. And so um, you know, one thing we skipped over I skipped over. In creating the business, you know, 
the whole community facade, all that, it, it definitely required like having a communal space where we're sitting right now, we're at this other, our other location, it's a version of that, a stripped down version of a communal space, but where people can sit, open a bottle of wine, hang out, make it feel like it's like their, their home away from home, their club, anything like that. So we have the, a nice setup. It's the old boiler room of the building. It's got some character. People like it. Not everybody likes it. Some people feel there should be a big flat screen TV playing whatever game is playing. And you know, people want it to be more than what it should be. And um, we've always politely refused that. You know, it's for hanging out, drinking wine, not you know, making it your man cave. And so I think, yeah, we feel like that kind of thing would alienate a lot of people. And I'm not a big game watcher, so, and nor is Tom, you know? So yeah, we didn't, we didn't go that route, but we did make it comfortable for that. And it turns out some people want to sign up and store wine with us for that, they, for, the, for the hangout space, for the wine community. They want to meet other people. And um, I can't say that it's worked out for everybody. Like, I don't know if everybody who signed up has met their, their wine comrades, but a lot of them have. A lot of them share rooms together. Like, they each rent their own locker, and they meet. They're both facing the same issue. Like, they need more space. Well, why don't we, you know, team up and rent a, a bigger room together? And so there's been some of those types of things happen. Um, they, you know, they happen. They're just, you know, a lot of them we're not even around to know they happen. We just, you know, we just find out that, oh, they'd like to get a room together and whatever. So, um, yeah, when, when we started doing more in the inventory work, um, and, and Andrea was moving on with her, her career, like, unable to just come work part-time for us and things, we started, you know, hiring other people who could assist with that, and um, at some point we realized it was helpful to have them be people with the wine background and not just somebody who's good on a computer or who we can pay, um, you know, very little to. Or you know, like we need we need to hire like good people, and so um, when. I had heard, well, first, before John, uh, Seth, Seth Morgan Long, he was a client of ours who I think he admired what we were doing. And, um, you know, he stored his wine with us for a while, I don't know how many years, but when he went, you know, to France, he left, you know, when he when he went to go do harvest somewhere else, I, I can't remember if he was in Australia or New Zealand, but you know, he'd leave for half a year, then come back, things like that. And when I think he was just trying to like decide about his path and getting up and running, and in between harvests, he um, he made himself available to us quite a bit, and. He, he didn't just do inventory work, he did everything. And he definitely seemed to care about 
his work and about what we thought of it, and um, he was great. We loved having Seth, and you know, he sometimes lived in the valley, sometimes lived in Portland, and he had good ideas. Not we didn't listen to everything he did, um, everything he said. Some of the things we, you know, when he wanted us to do them, we didn't, and then years later we actually did do, and he's been, you know, he's pointed that out. <laughs> and, and, and so I think it's through Seth that I met John, or I, I think Seth introduced John. We started selling wine at one point. Uh, we still do, but we got a, the re, a retail off-premises license to do a, um, we wanted to do organic biodynamic wines and a wine club format. I'd seen some people doing those wine club, you know, wine of the month club type formats with um, pretty good success. And at that point, this is a while ago, like, you know, there weren't, I can't, there weren't many organic wines or biodynamic wines that were advertised as such that tasted very good. There, there weren't a lot, definitely not domestically. There were some. But that was their selling point and not the fact that it was great wine, you know. There, there were other places doing it that just, they don't actually want to talk about that, you know, about that it's organic or biodynamic. They don't want to scare people away. And so um, we got a, a commercial client. At that point, we had added in commercial storage space. As we took over much of the upstairs of the building. As, as tenants in the building directly you know, renting from Dino, as they like moved on out of our building, we took over their spaces. So we were adding upstairs commercial space. And then if some of it was already ready to, you know, climate control machinery and stuff, uh, others we had to like put all that in and do it. And, and, but at that point, we knew how to do all that. So it was just a matter, as things came available, we took more space. And so we were taking commercial clients. And um, one of them was a startup, uh, a couple um, from Europe who were doing biodynamic wines, importing them, inorganic. But a lot of them didn't say it. A lot of them weren't certified. And they explain, they're the ones who explain that, like, well, so many of them aren't. You've got to know the story and this and that. You know. So it was like, oh, why don't we do a wine club that sells their wines? You know, hook them up. Because they were having a hard time breaking into the market. It wasn't a popular thing back then. Um, and um, so we tried it. And um, it worked out great having Seth there. It, um, to help write the newsletter. Originally, it was Tom and Andrea writing the newsletter, tasting, you know, finding the wines, doing the tasting notes. My contribution would be um, pairing, you know, making a recipe, writing out a standardized recipe for it, suggestions, you know, stuff like that. It, it took a lot of work, but the idea was that it was going to grow and get big and be another good business thing for us. And so and we did that for like a number of years. Um, so Seth took on that role and enjoyed it. And in doing that, you know, we had 
he brought in um, wine reps that we hadn't been exposed to. You know, he broadened it for us. And that's when, um, at some point, John Suarez came into the picture. And, um, but as a wine rep. And it wasn't until years later that we needed help. Seth was too busy with his winery project, Morgan Long. And um, I don't know if Seth recommended John. Or like he's, you know, he's in between jobs. Or I think he, he must have been. Anyways, John was like, yeah, you know. And he came, showed up, and jumped right in. And very, uh, you know, you don't have to give him advance warning about what he's going to be doing. He just shows up, and you tell him, and he's like, OK. And um, very, very easy to, to work with and all that, and pleasant to be around. So um, you know, pretty much all of our employees at some point have kind of just moved on. You know, we're maybe a good transition. I've felt like. Uh, also, our role with the building and with the, the wine storage for commercial stuff, the building has been, and our handling of it, has been kind of like a business incubator for smaller startup companies. Because we've had a number, I mean, a lot have rolled through. Some of them are well known um, still today. Some of them were kind of flash in the pan ideas that didn't work out, but you know, um, it's, it's it's a whole mix of things. And you know, sooner or later, people outgrow us. We're, we're you know, you know, they'll get their own warehouse, and um, or they'll move to um, you know, they'll change their business model, or they'll move like back down to the valley if they get their own property, like their own winery and stuff like that. We uh, where we're sitting now. We had one employee who was encouraging us to branch out. We've always kind of toyed with the idea, but um, as we uh, over the years, we've had competitors pop up, and I don't know if I'm supposed if, if we're supposed to call them competitors or if that's how they would like to be viewed by us. At this point, it is what it is. Like we all, there's plenty for everybody, and um, it's better if we work together. You know, which. Most of us do, but they're you know in all sections of the city and outside of Portland and across um, the Columbia and Vancouver, there's wine storage, um, different versions of it. Some places are more like clubs, like elite private clubs, memberships, and you go when there's a bar and um, pretty slick, great for networking, um, all kinds of things. You know, maybe a good place to go to on your way home. If you don't, if you want to buffer between work and home, but and the bar is not okay, you can go to your wine storage facility and, you know, fuss with your bottles or whatever they say they're doing. The whole market's grown for this kind of business, and um, looking at another facility strategically, you know, like you might think across the river. Um, but we felt like all those places were covered. You know, if we're going to compete with anybody, maybe just compete with ourselves and be just down the street. And we don't have to staff it because we can bounce between the two locations and um, utilize a lot of the same resources. You know, 
so that's what we chose to do. It took us a while to find this space. This space was ideal for us because it was, it's, it's got a cool story. It's kind of a mysterious, strange building with weird features in it. It's super solid. It's not going anywhere. Um, it was previously used by Casa Bruno before they outgrew it, but I, they were here for, I think, at least a dozen years. And um, so it kind of met certain requirements. Like, well, if it worked for them, like, it must work for us. And we just had to build it out to the way we wanted it. We have different standards. Um, we have to be have tighter control over like climate control and then security. I mean, everything else has to be a bit tighter. And so we had to make sure we met all those things. And then the aesthetic of it, you know, we wanted to complement what was already here. And it's not the same type of building as our main flagship down the street. This is more concrete and steel. So that's what we worked with for building materials. And it, you know, that was a fun project, building it out. What we weren't anticipating was COVID. So that um, made it harder. It, it slowed everything down. You know, any contractors we talked to, like when we were getting ready to get going, like stopped answering the phone, um, stopped showing up. We didn't know what, I mean, we didn't know like what we could do. Anyways, it just, the, the project took a lot more time, but it also, that gave us a chance to really look and think about how we wanted it done, rather than just quickly doing, you know, slapping something together. So it did serve us well. We just had to, it wasn't a three month turnaround like our original facility. It was like two years and, and we're still finishing projects here, details and stuff like that. It's a smaller space, but it serves the purpose of, you know, we had a long waiting list building up for rooms. Our larger wines, you know, private wine storage spaces, that, that was, I mean, for years we had a long waiting list and opening up this place really alleviated that and allowed us to, um, you know, somebody was just dead set on any larger space and they can move here. Mm -hmm. Some people are dead set on staying there because they like, they like the, the space. They like walking in, seeing us, we can help them, things like that. Whereas other people don't really want to, they don't want me to ask questions, they don't want me to look and see what they have, they want to talk about wine, you know, they've got their own thing they do. And, you know, other people will sit and tell you quite a bit about what they're drinking or their first bottle, those types of things. You know. And so, yeah, it brings us here more or less to, to now. You know, we're still growing. We've been fortunate enough to have um, a steady growth, some years better than others. The recessions didn't, I think, I think there have been two notable recessions and you know, that might be a time for one type of client to pull the plug and move their wine home. But that's also the same time that somebody sells their much bigger house and downsizes and needs storage like us. So we experienced growth during all that period of time, you know, and um, 
with people moving during COVID to the Western states to, you know, survive in the mountains and away from the disease in the city. Well, we did a lot of wine moves for people. We moved a lot of sellers to these places out of the way. And we've moved a lot of them back in, you know, <laughs> so it's, you know, it's just that stuff keeps happening. And, um, but yeah, a lot of people now like living in multiple places. So we, every year have to bring them their new allotments of purchased wine and stuff like that. We have gotten, um, we do more work these days with other wine companies um, who, uh, you know, Oregon, one thing that we didn't know anything about really when we were getting going had no, played zero factor in what, you know, in what we were trying to set up. But, you know, Oregon's, um, the, the liquor laws the, and all that, and um, it's a pretty green state for what you can do. I mean, everybody complains about the OLCC, but there, there are a lot of other states that are much more difficult to navigate through and to, to do a business like ours. We did have to explain to the OLCC what we were doing multiple times, and where we were put down the wrong path with it, originally about what kind of licensing, if any, we needed. Um, but that got sorted out and, um, you know, Oregon having um, pretty relaxed um, shipping laws for getting wine in or out of, you know, from other states. That was a big plus. Um, and then there's that thing called no sales tax that is, plays a huge role. And so we got, you know, there were some savvy people a long time ago who called us up asking if they could store wine with us that they're buying and then maybe they'd come and, come and get it someday or periodically or make, could we ever ship it to them. And, and um, the number of people that we do that for has grown. So we do serve a wider audience than people who live in Portland or the outlying areas. We do a lot of storage for people buying expensive wine and um, wine that um, they're, you know, the savings that they're getting is, is dramatic. And the, st the cost of having it stored with us and maybe shipping it to them and doing services like inventory work for them, that's all. You know, they're still way ahead of the game that way. And, um, but that also means more handling on our part, more, um, you know, not working three days a week, but working six days a week and, and stuff like that. And having not one part-time employee, but four full-time employees. So to do these things, to satisfy the asks of various clients, we've had to um, really step up what we do. And we're still doing that. We're still trying to satisfy both the new um, types of requests we're getting, as well as, you know, our original clients and our local clients who, you know, 
are all walks of life. You know. I think if you have any questions, that would be great. <laughs> Otherwise, I mean, it's my turn. Yeah. I, I, Let's talk about the future, I guess, then. Um, you talk about the, the slow, steady growth, uh, overcoming recession, overcoming pandemic, dealing with, and obviously diversifying your business. So uh, as you look at it now, as it's an established business, you have a lot of different kind of lines of, of work. What happens next? And what, what, is, what do you want your role to be in how it evolves? That's a, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a question we've asked ourselves. And don't, you know, we want to continue Seen, I mean, we're spoiled. We've had things fall in our lap. We've lucked out. We've had a lot of bad things happen, too. Um, it hasn't always been easy. But um, how we've handled it, maybe, and, and also the luck, good fortune, has allowed things to move you know, forward and all that. And um, so. You know, there's always going to be um, challenges ahead that we don't plan on, you know, that we can't have planned on happening. I think for us, you know, owning the properties that we operate out of is attractive. I do know that um, it's not common for wine storage facilities to own the their own facilities. And um, I've never gotten a good explanation as to why that's so, but to us that makes a lot of sense to own it. And because um, we like control, you know, what's better than a long lease? It's owning the property so you don't need a lease or, you know, we would lease it to ourselves. And, you know, if we do ever want to pass the torch, so to speak, or partner up, the the best way to do that would be to own our property because you can I can guarantee to the, to whoever that is that we'd be doing that with we can guarantee that they're getting something you know with with insurance you know and um, so that's been a that's been a goal of ours and um, you know that may or may not ever happen. It's not necessary. That's the, the, the good thing at the end of the day is that that's not a necessary part of our business. All the necessary things have happened. You know, natural disasters, things like pandemics, earthquakes, acts of God, all those things, you know, if and when they happen, they happen. And that's not worth planning around, really, other than, you know, like basic things. <laughs> uh, we're, we've talked to some people we like about partnering up in various ways and um, in, uh, you know, in other markets, other parts of the country. And it, sometimes that makes a lot of sense. You know? But one thing we're also spoiled about is not having uh, a boss. You know? it's, it's nice working for yourself. Not everything is nice about it, because you know, it's not like you just you know show up, clock in, clock out. You're always working. Um, I go to bed at night, and I wake up with um, you know sometimes a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety about things. Um, 
And um, I'm used to that from restaurants. Like, I still do get those restaurant dreams um, occasionally, but they happen. And, um, you know, it's, yeah, owning, it, it's, it, it was nice to be able to, to set something up for ourselves and, and have it actually work out. Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of the people that knew us thought it was going to work out, you know. Most of them bit their tongues. And some, some people told me, like, I don't it's not a good idea. Like, why would, like, that doesn't make sense. And, like, when, going over in Europe, meeting people there, I remember, like, um, like the wine steward in some Italian restaurant asking me what, like, he's trying to figure out what I, like, what my deal was. Like, and so he's like, you know, like, so what do you do? And, and like, and I was trying to tell him, and he just couldn't. I kept trying to explain it. He spoke good English, and he just couldn't wrap his head around that there would be people wanting this kind of business, and that it would allow me to travel to Italy and be in his restaurant ordering wine. Like, it didn't make any sense. And so, um, yeah. But we're not looking to expand. It's not a world-dominant kind of uh, thing. We like it being in Portland. We like staying here. You know, I imagine. Yeah, I thought about what it would be like to hop. You know, live part time other places doing this, and nothing's ever been ruled out. It just hasn't ever felt that compelling. You know. Um, so no, like some things don't need to keep. Don't need to have next steps other than you know. The same thing. But it's been 24 years, you know, of this business. So. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Well, obviously, I know your main, fo your main focus isn't on the Oregon wine industry, but obviously, you mentioned sort of having people from the industry as clients over the years and as friends over the years. So tell me just a little bit about what you've sort of seen in the evolution of the Oregon wine industry um, and where you, you might see it heading next. Well, it obviously has grown quite a bit, you know. Over the years, um, you know, when we first got going, you could drive out to, you know, a different AVA and pretty much hit, like, all the wineries, you know, if you wanted to. And um, that, that wasn't that big of a deal. You know, most of them wouldn't be open, like, for the public unless it was like during one of the special times, right? And so, um, I mean, what we, we, what we have seen and what we didn't see much of back then are the uh, you know, younger people getting in and doing their own thing. And um, somewhere along the way, it, it, things got more accessible. You know, I think like the winemakers, like the Carlton, winemaker studio, like that model um, invited other, other similar models to be created. Um, the whole um, the urban wine winery scene, you know, Southeast Wine Collective. One thing I didn't mention anything about is we separately started up our own winery label that um, <clears throat> first we were making it, you know, you know, falling under the custom crush umbrella, we were making it um, in Gaston um, with the winemaker Drew Voigt, 
working, uh, our winemaker was Tom's wife, or is Tom's wife, Andrea Shirk, and she had been working harvests, um, various places, um, Shea being one of them, where Drew was the winemaker there. They all hit it off, they all liked each other. When Drew did his own thing um, in Gaston, um, and we were starting up our label, Laylaps. Um, that's where we made it. And um, with Andrea, you know, it's a custom crush, but you know, different places have different rules about how much input you can have. And, and, and this arrangement was like all the input. Like Andrea did all the work, unless it was something she needed Drew's advice on. And, um, you know, so we did that, and but then that's a hassle going out. You know, living in Portland, going out to wine country is fine if you're doing it for a pleasant day, tasting wine somewhere. But to run out there and just punch down and and check on the grapes, you know, whatever, do some lab work. Doing that once a day is a lot. Twice a day is ridiculous. And um, so it it was only like two, maybe three harvests of out there before we decided to look what was available here in Portland. And luckily, we had met um, Tom and Kate um, through Portland Wine Storage. And they had an opening, and we were able to move uh, on the Division uh, Southeast Wine Collective and do that there. So, and then Wow, there's a lot of people here doing making wine, and some are full hands-on like we were, and other people, um, you know, relied on Tom and Kate and their their workers to do stuff. A lot of the people that worked there went on to start their own labels. The alums there, you know, went on. Some of them we already knew and did business with, storing wine for, and um, yeah, it just and. You know, you see all types of different people getting into the wineries, uh, you know, business and being, some of them with no experience starting up, some of them with a little experience, and um, it's just, you know, they're, like I mentioned, we were kind of an incubator for certain types of businesses. Well, the urban wineries are huge, and not urban wineries, but custom crush facilities are huge incubators. And so that's definitely playing a big role in allowing younger, um, newer people to the industry to just jump in and move forward with it. And so I see a lot of that. But then at the same time, as I'm sure a lot of people have been talking about, is all the consolidation and um, you know all that kind of stuff. You know wineries being built up pretty fast and big and then being bought out and then um, then consolidated with other ones and that whole thing. And so that's probably going to keep going. And um, you know, we're looking, you know, my perspective of that is on the outside looking in. You know, I do know some of the people involved with some of those things through wine storage and um, you know, I, I hear good things and I hear bad things, and but I don't see, I don't see that changing. I don't know. People's appetite might be changing for 
all the change-ups and all the, you know, you like a wine and then it, what you liked about it changes because you liked going there and talking to the winemaker. And that doesn't happen anymore, maybe. It's like one winemaker for multiple places. And, you know, it's just the, the intimacy might be, um, might lose its, you know, it might lose its intimacy. That, that is a big draw for people. And, um, but, you know, you're getting, just like the food scene blew up in Portland, exploded, with people being experimental with food, you know, like when Pigeon came around and everyone was so excited about that, because it was exciting, and, um, you know, what people can do, and it doesn't have to be expensive, you know, by, you know, if you go to other parts of the country and you, you see what you're willing to pay. When Castagna started doing their big tasting menus, you know, I forget what that cost, but it wasn't much. I mean, it was under $100 for like a three-hour experience that, you know, you normally would have to travel pretty far to, and I don't even think anyone was really doing that. Maybe, maybe, you know, in um, maybe Noma, you know, you go to another country and, and get something like that, or in Spain. But so that was pretty exciting, all that. So like the the food scene exploding, rewarding people for being experimental. At the same time, you had the food trucks and all that. That same that same energy. People just trying things out and, and being rewarded for it, even if it wasn't that good, you know. The winery, the wine scene seems like that's still happening, you know, or that's come into it. And, you know, not everything that's going on with the types of wines being produced um, finds its way to, to my world, wine storage, because not everything's made for that kind of, you know, you don't store orange wine, maybe, or a lot of those types of things, you know, those are made for quick consumption. And, um, I mean, generally, but anyways, yeah, I, I think, I think you're going to see more, I think we're going to continue to see more wineries and more people doing that, but then at the same time, that's at the bottom end of it, like the startup end, the smaller stuff, and then you're going to continue to see that consolidation. And I don't know about any new wine, any new AVAs, new areas that haven't already been tapped into, but you know, the, the change in climate might have a big effect on it. I know it, it was affecting our wines. We were making Pinot, high elevation um, Pinot that, um, well, for various reasons we don't, we don't really have access to anymore. But it was, each year was like a hotter year and making a, a bigger wine, something we were trying to get away from. And um, so that might affect things too, right? I don't see the storage thing shifting too much, the need for it. Like I was saying, there's a lot of out-of-state um, interest. That's, that's only increasing, so anything we would lose locally could easily be replaced by that need. Um, but no, I have no idea what's in store.
<laughs> well, you brought up Laylapse there. As, uh, what was the impetus to start that, and, and how, has that, how did that project progress? Um, well, it started off with, um, with Tom and Andrea and two of our clients, Norm and Sam, wine storage clients, who um, I think it was Sam's idea to start a wine drinking club, like where we taste wines and stuff together. And um, they were doing that. I, I started doing that with them, drink, you know, getting together you know, every couple weeks, I don't know, and drinking a bunch of wines. And you know, everyone enjoyed doing that. And, and that little group, and there was some other other people joined in with that too. It wasn't just us five. There were a few other people, but um, it was called Mad Dog, the, the drinking group and um, or tasting group. So Mad Dog. Um, at some point, those guys wanted to make wine, and um, Andrea was making wine. You know, so um, doing harvest. So I was able to secure some fruit, and um, I, I don't know all the details, to be honest, but started doing like kind of like, you know, basement, backyard vintages. I forget how many. I was not part of that. I didn't, I didn't get involved with that. And then one year, I think it was 2009, I had a friend doing harvest, and he approached me saying, there's all this extra fruit, and some of it's supposed to be pretty good, and we can get it for free. You know, if I can get it, um, can we, you know, do you have a, a spot, you know, out of the way where we could do something with it, you know? And, you know, he, he talked me into it, and so we ended up, it was more than he thought. It was actually like at least four barrels, it might have been six barrels of wine, and it ended up being. And, um, and it was supposed to be Malbec, and it ended up being Merlot. Um, it, was, it, was like, you know, it was a lot of things. It was good, and uh, we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, we, luckily, you know, enough people roll through our facility that I, if somebody had some time, I'd be like, hey, do you mind tasting this? And, you know, I did get some good advice, or at least from people that I, who were notable winemakers. And, um, but it was mostly a hands-off approach, and, and it came out remarkably good for what it was. And there's still some bottles floating around, but most of it got snatched up. They made great gifts, and then some people wanted more than what we gave them. And, you know, there was some under table. There was some bar, a lot of bartering, you know. And anyways, it was after that, that and then when the, 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 the mad dog group that was making the wine, they, um, they wanted to kind of make it a commercial product and not just a backyard, you know, homegrown thing. So I got invited to join them in that. And, you know, now that I had kind of gotten some experience with it, like, it's not that hard, right? We just did it without even knowing what we were doing. Um, I mean, we, when we got the barrels, we moved them from a winery facility to our warehouse. 
they were com coming out of the back of a pickup truck, you know, several feet lower than our loading bay. I mean, we literally like put like a bunch of two by fours and made a ramp and rolled the barrels, the full barrels up and then down the hall and like, you know, and then we used our elevator, um, you know, gravity to do, you know, to, to rack the barrels and stuff and it all worked out fine and, you know, but anyways, Joining and doing the commercial product with Laylapse, um, that was kind of a new experience and that was fun. And that was, there's a lot of stuff to do, I realized, besides make wine, that are, it's involved with getting a winery going. And, um, you know, I, I was tasked with some of the more mundane stuff or, you know, the paperwork and things like that that I wasn't too thrilled about, but was able to do. And um, that's been going since 2012. That was our first vintage. And um, I stepped away from that a, a year ago. Um, the, you know, I got what I wanted out of it. And um, I also, um, probably around the same time, I, you know, went through some of my own personal changes in life and I was like, you know, a lot of the, the, a lot of what drew me into the wine world and all that kind of lost its mystique and romance and um, I've definitely seen an ugly side to it. And um, so I pretty much quit drinking altogether and uh, I still love wine. I still love tasting wine and, you know, Catch me the right moment, and I'll, I'll, you know, talk as long as you want about it. But, um, like, like my everyday experience with wine is limited to my work. You know, um, it was never a big part of my wine of, of my wife's life. So, when I stopped, she stopped, and uh, you know, it was kind of a. It was a, while it was a sudden thing, it wasn't like a dramatic thing. It was just like, can't do that anymore. It's not, it's not working for me. And, um, you know, I didn't know what that meant. I don't know if that was going to be like, do I not do wine storage anymore? Or do I not do that? Uh, and, um, you know, it wasn't. I thought about it. I'm like, no, this is fine. I'm, I still like it. I still like the people that puts me around and all that. And um, so, I mean, that's kind of an odd thing to say, maybe. But um, you know, it's probably a reality for a lot of people. You know, I know a lot of, I know a lot of chefs, and I know there are a lot of bartenders who, for various reasons, choose not to uh, to drink or, you know, or, or cut it way back. And you know, my personal feeling with it. It felt like too much work to cut back on it, on my on my uh, consumption of it. Like if I was going to be drinking, I didn't want to be thinking about that part of it. I didn't want to think about moderation. If, if if moderation worked out, that's fine. But like it didn't always, because um, one of the pitfalls, or it depends. You might not call it a pitfall, but. Within the having like your own place, a wine storage facility, or a bar, or whatever, or even a winery tasting room, 
you have like people rolling through all the time. So you might sit down and have a glass of wine with one group of people, but then they're, as they're walking out the door, you have somebody else walking in the door. So it, it, was, it was very easy to hang out and um, you know, partake. And um, sometimes that felt like that was the job. And um, so as that kind of happened, it became less attractive because it wasn't by my choice. It was more like I felt compelled. And, um, and that's probably, yeah, I imagine that that's what other people experience at some point. You know, if you're going to be sociable, and that's how you know it to be, like, if I'm going to be sociable, it's with a glass of wine in my hand or something. Um, it, it, you know, it, for me, it meant just stopping altogether. And, um, and then it's like super easy. So that's my little, like, you know, piece on that, I guess. <laughs> little, little PSA at the end there. I like yeah. that. I like that. Hey, it worked out for me, yeah. you know? Well, it's all the questions that I have for you. Actually, I didn't really ask you that many questions at all. But all the questions I have, uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have or anything else that we'd like to cover today that we didn't cover already? Well, I mean, I kind of figured you would have the, uh, you know, if there was something I, I didn't include, you would have asked. And yeah, you just yeah. checked off all my boxes here without, without me having to ask it. So it's terrific. Well, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your new space with us. This is a cool space. It's nice to see it. Um, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Right on. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years. <laughs>